We now go back to Dr. Miller for another patient, a 60-year-old woman who, like about 5% of patients with breast cancer, presented with metastatic disease. About six months or so before I met her, she first noticed inversion of her left nipple. She saw her primary care physician who reassured her and told her that this was nothing to be worried about. Until about six months later when she saw her gynecologist, who sent her immediately for breast imaging. And her mammogram found a fairly large area of suspicious microcalcifications associated with an irregular tissue density, highly suspicious for malignancy. She had first an FNA, which found malignant cells, and then a core biopsy, which confirmed a moderately differentiated invasive ductal carcinoma. On her breast imaging, there were also suspicious axillary adenopathy. Given the size of the tumor and the regional extent of disease, she was referred to a medical oncologist to consider primary chemotherapy. But given the potential for more distant disease with this history and the locally advanced disease at presentation, she first underwent some additional imaging. And unfortunately, CT scans found some mediastinal adenopathy as well as a couple of sclerotic bone lesions that were highly suspicious, as well as a subcentimeter non-calcified pulmonary nodule that was tough to know if that was disease or not. She then had a biopsy of one of the suspicious-appearing bone lesions, one that happened to be in her sacrum, and that unfortunately confirmed that she did have metastatic disease at presentation. Now, I know you were holding out to the very slim chance that she might be one of the tiny fraction of patients with metastatic disease and no prior systemic therapy who might be cured by chemo, so you wanted to hold off on hormone therapy and begin with chemo, and you chose paclitaxel bevacizumab as it was given in the huge ECOG trial you ran. Can you talk about that? So the E2100 trial compared paclitaxel given in a weekly dose and schedule by itself or the same paclitaxel regimen given with bevacizumab. And it was specifically for patients whose tumors were HER2 negative, who were receiving their first chemotherapy for metastatic disease. And that could have been women such as this one who had metastatic disease at diagnosis, where that was their first therapy ever. It also included women who had had adjuvant chemotherapy sometime earlier and were now progressing. And it allowed patients whose tumors were hormone-sensitive to have received any number of antiestrogen manipulations. But at whatever point they needed chemotherapy, they were eligible for this trial. So in this trial, patients who got the combination of paclitaxel and bevacizumab were about twice as likely to have their tumors shrink. And the benefits of the chemotherapy, so from the time when you start until your disease is clearly progressing, was almost twice as long, with a very minor increase in side effects, at least minor as far as side effects that impact patients' quality of life on a day-to-day basis. Now, there are a lot of other possibilities. She could have gotten paclitaxel or any of the other taxanes with or without bevacizumab. She could have gotten other chemo like capecitabine with or without bevacizumab. Why do you think it is that people are concluding, you know, that maybe this might be the best regimen? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. And I actually am one of the folks who don't think there is a clear first choice or best choice for first-line therapy across the board. There is data supporting lots of different choices, and we need to have the freedom to be able to discuss options with patients and somewhat tailor those choices based on their goals of treatment and what toxicities bother them. 
I think this has become a very common choice because of the results we saw in the E2100 trial. There's a huge increase in response rates, progression-free survival of over 11 months, which has been hard to beat with any other trial of combinations in the metastatic setting, with, in general, a regimen that was very well tolerated. So when you're trying to balance side effects of therapy, picking a regimen that has a lot of other toxicities I think becomes a bit harder to justify. Now, what kinds of toxicities did you see in your study? What have been seen in other studies, and what happened in her? So you can, I think, sort of divide the toxicities into those that come from the paclitaxel and those that come from the bevacizumab. So weekly paclitaxel has very little issues with myelosuppression. It can cause hair thinning and some alopecia, though it's not uniform and consistent across patients. It has very little issues with nausea, but it can still have issues with fatigue, and it can still have issues with neuropathy. And in E2100, about 25% of patients in the combination arm reported grade 3 neuropathy at some point. They required either dose interruptions or dose reductions. The bevacizumab has its own unique toxicities. By far the most common was hypertension. So about 17% of patients either needed new blood pressure medicine or adjustment of a blood pressure medicine they had been on previously. In E2100, there were very low rates of bleeding or significant thromboembolic events or proteinuria, though those are still important toxicities for patients and their doctors to be aware of. We didn't see significant increases in most of the chemotherapy toxicities. The neuropathy is perhaps the one exception, but when we looked at the rates of neuropathy per cycle, they were absolutely the same. So that apparent increase that we saw in the combination was really a byproduct of more effective disease control, so patients continuing on therapy with both agents for a longer period of time. Now, what actually happened with her? So she had a very nice response, and certainly based on her measurable areas of disease, she had an excellent partial response, but nothing close to a complete response. Her biggest issues actually came from a less common toxicity. She had a significant skin toxicity from the paclitaxel. This is something that's been reported before, though it's not particularly common. The skin toxicity is essentially a radiation recall. The radiation in this case not being therapeutic radiation for cancer, but solar radiation from living in the Midwest on a farm and spending years outside without proper sun protection. Her skin toxicity was actually probably the worst of all of the Indiana farm wives that I've dealt with and seemed to be slower to recover with dose reductions and time off therapy. So she continued the paclitaxel and bevacizumab until it became clear that her response had really plateaued and she began to have more issues with the neuropathy and particularly painful neuropathy in her feet. So at that point, her chemotherapy was discontinued. She's continued the bevacizumab, and we've added hormone therapy since her tumor was estrogen positive in hopes that that will maximize the duration of response and maximize the time until we need to somehow otherwise intervene for her disease. Which hormone therapy, and what do we know about bevacizumab combined with hormone therapy? Well, she was premenopausal at her initial diagnosis, became amenorrheic with the chemotherapy, but certainly still could have resumption of ovarian function and may have residual ovarian function. So she's on tamoxifen as her hormone therapy. 
We know from some pilot trials that there were no unique safety issues combining bevacizumab with aromatase inhibitors. And we know that in the adjuvant pilot trials that have been conducted with bevacizumab, the bev was given concurrently with hormone therapy, including with tamoxifen, and there have been no apparent safety issues seen. So what's her quality of life right now? Does she have any hypertension? Does she have any symptoms from treatment? So she's had no issues with hypertension. She has some hot flashes, which she describes as sort of a minor annoyance. Her biggest problem is ongoing neuropathy and particularly painful neuropathy in her feet. That really limits her ability to spend hours on her feet at a time. It has not limited her working, but certainly modifies the way she works. And for her, I have to say the biggest issue is it's modified her footwear. This is a woman who was quite the shoe maven and has had to revert to very sensible shoes that she sort of describes as the grandma footwear to be most comfortable. How have you found working with her? This is a pretty difficult situation to be diagnosed initially with breast cancer and metastatic disease. And it's been a couple of years now. I found her myself. She seemed a little bit kind of shaky to me. I don't know if it was just the day that I talked to her or that's kind of the way she is. It varies a bit from day to day. She has, I think, always been quite realistic about her situation and her prognosis. I think she many days deals with it by just pushing on with her work and her family and her daily activities. I think she sort of picks and chooses the times that she's willing to go to that emotional place that thinking about her breast cancer takes her to. I frequently see her in that state in my office, but she and her husband, I think, honestly tell me that that's somewhat unusual, that on a day-to-day basis, she's not overwhelmed with anxiety and depression and fear. On a day-to-day basis, she goes about her life and she complains about the neuropathy that I gave her. But otherwise, she goes about her life and she enjoys her life. Coming to clinic visits and talking about her breast cancer, though, is still a bit difficult. When she first walked in my office, the idea that she would not only still be alive, but working full-time and enjoying her life and still with lots of therapeutic maneuvers available to her nearly two years after diagnosis was just not something she saw as possible after that first conversation. So I think that's always a challenge for us. In her case, we've chosen not to do surgery to remove her primary breast tumor. That's a decision that probably gives me the greatest angst because there is real uncertainty about whether that would have independent benefit for her. That's something she and I have talked about at length. It's a bit complicated because she's on bevacizumab and we would need to hold the bev to have her surgery safely. She also has no symptoms from her bone disease. Her primary tumor is an easily accessible, measurable area of disease. So removing it also makes our follow-up a bit more challenging. And it's not locally causing her any symptoms at all. So rightly or wrongly for right now, we've decided not to pursue any local therapy. And I guess the issue about bevacizumab and surgery is delayed wound healing, which seems, I guess, to be obviated if you can just sort of wait, what, six weeks, eight weeks off the bevacizumab for surgery? Well, so the recommendations have suggested holding the bev for at least four weeks before surgery and at least four weeks after surgery. The difficulty, though, is if you look at the half-life of the drug, 
those recommendations make no sense at all. You still have therapeutic levels of the drug in most patients. If you look at effective length of inhibiting VEGF signaling, it's much longer than the serum half-life. So those have been the official recommendations. If you follow those, most patients have very little of any difficulty. But from purely a pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic sense, you really would have to be off the bed for much longer than that before it might have no impact. 